Okay, first question. Uh, yeah, so could you talk more about uh, how suffering is a gift from God, and it's good, in that it comes from God, yet at the same time it's also evil, in that it's coming from, in the, well, like in the case of Joseph, uh, his imprisonment was evil because he was unjustly imprisoned. His being sold into slavery was evil because it was done from malicious intent. So it's it's good and a gift, but then it's also evil and to be avoided. Uh, so can you just talk about the relationship between those two things? Yes. God uses evil for our good. God is such a God, such a powerful and miraculous God, that He uses evil for our good, for the good of His people, for the good of the chosen, for the good of believers, the saints. That's how He uses evil. That's the way it is from beginning to the end of the Bible. That's the relationship. So that on the one hand, God has evil in the world, and the people who practice evil, are punished for their evil, but all hope is not lost because God's intention with evil is to bless His people. And how does He bless them? He blesses them by using that evil to sanctify His people. That's the relationship between the two. That's why Scripture says, Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. These all things include all of the sufferings He explains in verses 31 to 39. And none of those sufferings will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, but are actually used to make us Conform to the image of Christ. He uses them as instruments of our sanctification. All suffering or all evil. But it's not a lack of faith or evil and to seek to avoid it, if possible. But then if it's unavoidable, receive it as a gift from God. Is that the way that we should approach it? Okay, should we avoid evil? Well, we should avoid the commissioning of evil. We should avoid the doing of evil because when we do evil, God will punish us. We are held responsible for whatever evil we commit. As it says, since we're in, we're just in Romans, it says in Romans 2.6, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and, and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. Verses 2 to 8. Romans 2, 6. I'm sorry. Romans 2, verses 6 to 8. Those who do good, God will reward them for the good. Those who do evil, God will punish them for their evil. That's the case no matter what. So we, shouldn't, we should not commit evil because we will be punished for committing evil. But is it okay to avoid evil so that we don't have to deal with the circumstances, the temptations 
in the presence of evil. Yes. And that depends on what we're talking about. Generally speaking, in the Lord's Prayer, Christ taught us to pray about that, to pray that way. He says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not wrong to pray that we might not be tempted, but actually be delivered from temptation. Don't this day, like when we're starting the day and we anticipate the places where we might go, we might pray, we should pray, Lord, deliver me from the temptations. Don't bring me into this or that scenario, whatever it might be. My words, my my hands, my eyes, whatever it might be, deliver me from the temptations. That's okay to pray like that. But it's not okay to pray, deliver me from temptation or deliver me from evil to be an excuse to disobey God. We can't use it as an excuse to be a coward. When the evil comes to our attention, when it's thrown into our laps, then it is our responsibility to act accordingly. We can't be cowards and say, well, I'm going to avoid this evil. It's thrown onto my lap. I'm just going to uh, skip it. I'm going to run away. I'm not going to deal with it. After all, we can't die. Uh, Every hill is not a hill to die on. People use that phrase, that cliche, to be a coward. We can't have that approach either. That's like a, a test case for that. Uh, maybe we could explain Acts 9, 23-25, when they let Paul out in the basket. So he, he avoids, that there was a plot that was made known, and he, you know, he didn't just go out and say, come and take me. He actually ran away, right? Yes. In Acts chapter 9, this is uh, one of the legitimate cases where we might avoid evil. Acts 9, 23 to 25. Acts 9, 23 to 25. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. There he avoided it with the help of the disciples. It's not wrong to avoid it in that sense. But he didn't always avoid it. He didn't always avoid it. In fact, in Acts chapter 21, Acts chapter 21, he is with other disciples in Acts 21, 11, 11 to 14. Acts 21, 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since 
he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, May the will of the Lord be done. In that case, he's convinced that God wants him to go and suffer whatever the consequences. It might be one or the other, depending on the situation, what God has for that particular situation for that particular person. Generally, though, are we to avoid persecution when it is the threat of life? Yes. Violence and the threat of life, generally we are to avoid it. But there may be an occasion when God says, you need to go and this is what you need to suffer. Another question? Yes, actually, I think that's more implied. It's not direct. That it, it wasn't a regular dream, a daily dream. It was something special, and they didn't know what to make of it because they had never experienced it before. So because they were at a loss to know what to make of it, that's the way I, I said that's implied. And then Joseph confirms it by the way he answers them when they said that... Um, the reason why they were sad. Yes, it is more implied and then confirmed by Joseph that it was a special dream from God. It was a divine oracle and not a daily dream. Yes? So, so how does this idea of dream interpretation, is I mean, what... I've not seen people interpreting dreams today, obviously. Um, is this something that can still happen? You know, that's kind of a broad question. It, you know, I mean, obviously we see it in Scripture, but you know, we see in the New Testament uh, spiritual gifts that we don't really see anymore. Is it, would this fall in line with that as well? Yes. Yes. Uh, prophets and apostles don't exist today, and since they don't exist, then we don't have infallible interpreters of dreams, presumably special dreams from God. Not daily dreams, but special dreams from God. We don't have them, like Joseph or Daniel, Moses or whoever. We don't have anyone like that. And often if you test the individual who announces his dream as an oracle from God, if you test that individual, test that individual's theology, understand the background, test that individual's biblical knowledge, test that individual's character, his knowledge of Scripture, 
whether what he says conforms to Scripture or not, his humility, how, how can he in such cavalier manner say what he's saying and have no regard for Scripture? If you examine the situation along those lines, you will find that the dreamer who announces his dream to you is actually a fictitious dreamer. It's not coming from God. He's just making it up or he's thinking his daily dream is a word from God. That's why we went through those passages that taught us to test whatever we hear by Scripture. If we test it by Scripture, then that will often solve the situation. You see... uh, Somebody asked this in relation to prophets a a while ago of me. Um, She said that her friend claims to be a prophetess. And I said, is your friend an honest friend? Do you see your friend, from the behavior of your friend, is she an honest friend? Does she always speak forth what is true Uh, straightforwardly, honestly, does she speak that way? And she couldn't give me a definite yes. She wanted to say, uh, she didn't want to say anything negative, but she didn't want to give me a definite yes. So if she won't give me a definite yes, the most honest person I know on the earth is my friend who claims to be a prophetess. She didn't give me an answer like that. That's... That's one red flag, right? Um, Then, what is it that she says? What is it that your prophetess friend says? Is it something significant? Is, Is it something that's a concern to God? The answer is, she couldn't give me a definite yes. Mostly silent, a little bit of a nod here or there, but not any definite, clear answer. Okay, then does it come true? And can we say definitely 100% of the time whatever she says comes true? She also couldn't give me a definite yes. Also, what is her church background? What is her church or denominational background? Well, it's Pentecostal. It's Pentecostal. And not only Pentecostal, but not... a a kind of conservative Pentecostal, but a kind of wild Pentecostal, as far as I understood, if I understood correctly. So, Pentecostal. And the Pentecostal church doesn't teach the Bible. She herself thinks that if you delve into the Bible too deeply, then you are a legalist. And called our friend our friend, a legalist for knowing the Bible or trying to figure out the Bible. So why would a prophetess who claims to have a word from God, from the Holy Spirit, accuse our friend of being a legalist for trying to study and know the Bible? See, you, you see what I'm saying? If you examine the claims of these people, just unpack one by one, ask the questions, probe the matter, and the more that you unpack, the more that you find that the package is not full of, of um, sweet things, but full of maggots and rats. 
Really, that's what it's about. Don't take people's word for it whenever they make a claim. Just ask questions politely, cordially, ask questions and try to unpack what's really going on. Okay, when people say things like that, God spoke to me just as you are speaking to me right now, I do the same thing. I say, how do you know that that was God? How do you know? And in fact, a a woman, the wife of a husband in church, actually said that, that she knew God spoke to her and told her. So I asked her, how do you know God did? How do you know it was God? Did you hear an audible voice? And she couldn't say dogmatically, that she heard an audible voice. And then I said, how do you know it was God and not the devil? My wife was there asking these questions too. How do you know it was God, not the devil, or your own mind, or what you just wanted to be true? And then you said it was God. How do you know? She couldn't give a clear answer. She couldn't give a straightforward, plain answer, which means we called her on it. We called her on it. Also, try this next time. I've been waiting. I haven't thought of this until recently, but I've been waiting. If someone claims to be a prophet, and I know it's a fraud, I know he's a fraud, and someone claims to be a prophet, claim to be a prophet yourself. So I'm gonna be, I'm gonna, I'm gonna claim to be a prophet myself and say that I am a prophet, a true prophet, And I am told that you are a false prophet. Now who's right? Now who is right? Am I right? Or is the other man right? (laughs) Yes. You see how this works? There's a lot of deception, a lot of shenanigans that go on in churches with these claims. Very little truth. More deception. They may not be claiming to be a prophet, but I've decided to do this action. The Lord's leading me to do something. Yes. And we'll, usually it's to cover for a bad decision. Yes, yes. When they say the Lord led me, the Lord spoke to me, the Lord moved me, the Holy Spirit said. Whenever I, they say the Spirit led me to do, if it contradicts Scripture, the Spirit didn't lead them to do anything. It was their spirit or an evil spirit or the spirit of the world that led them to do it. Not the Holy Spirit. There's no way. That's why we cited Proverbs 28, 9. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And Isaiah 8, 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They might say that, but it's not true. And also, Jeremiah 23 The whole chapter, the whole of the 40 verses of Jeremiah 23, especially beginning at verse 9. The whole chapter is a clear denunciation of false prophets who say the oracle of the Lord or the Lord said when God didn't actually say. And Jeremiah lets them know clearly 
They should never say so. They should never have the audacity to say so. And if they have the audacity of saying so, God will certainly punish them. Jeremiah 23. That should, if a plain, simple reading of that passage doesn't cause the fear of God in a false prophet, if it doesn't cause them to sober up and repent and to admit to you, that will show you who they really are. Jeremiah 23. It should motivate people to fear God and repent of their sin. All right, thank you. Let's have a word of prayer. A word of prayer.